Thank you for downloading this week's episode of PR Week's Coffee Break. For more episodes, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee Break. It's Steve Barrett here, the Editorial Director of PR Week, here with another episode. Delighted to be with Michael Ramler, who's the co-founder of Morning Consult. And uh, Michael, welcome to Coffee Break and great to catch up. Hi, Steve. Great, great to see you. Great to be here. Yeah. Now, listen, you've parlayed Morning Consult up from a 30K startup in 2014 to a valuation of around a billion, I think, when you got some Series B funding last year. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about that journey. I mean, you call yourselves a global decision intelligence, intelligence company. Yeah. So, what, lay a bit of context on that. What does that actually mean? Yeah, you know, I think what's really exciting about Morning Console is just the growth story. Uh, We started with three of us in a row home in Washington, D.C., and the vision has really stayed the same from day one. We really feel like our focus is on informing better decisions, whether it's for corporate leaders, financial leaders, business leaders, or uh, public sector leaders. And so from our standpoint, what we focus on is building this decision intelligence technology. We can collect daily interviews around the world in 44 countries on a daily basis, and then work in 80 plus countries. And so we're trying to deliver you this information that would inform a decision, whether it's about your brand, whether it's about the economic environment. Um, But I think what it speaks to that growth is just the incredible opportunity that was in front of us. And so I don't think any of us expected we'd go from 30K angel capital to a billion dollar business in seven years. Um, I think we had a lot of ambition and I think we had a good idea, but we've been really lucky to have great people. And so that was sort of the challenge going into the pandemic is how do you manage sort of that growing organization into a new operating paradigm? Yeah, now I think you felt uh, and your and your partners that you know the research and polling had kind of been stuck in the eighties a little bit and yeah. uh, a bit like my fashion sense. Um, but <laughs> talk us through that and 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 obviously what you've done has resonated because it it does seem to be incredibly popular. Yeah, I think if you look at decision intelligence in our mind, it's taking what market research or alternative data was in the 1990s and bringing it forward in a technology way. Um, We look at it as two parts, high frequency data on what people think, married with artificial intelligence that allows you to predict what they'll do, or in some cases, the gulf between what they think and what they'll do. And I think from our standpoint, it's the ability to do the real-time survey research that's really differentiated. So whether you're a chief marketing officer, head of insights, chief communications officer, a lot of the traditional functions are just speeding up and the depth of data really differentiates it. But also chief strategy officers, chief financial officers, if you're looking at how you're pricing your product or you're looking at the underlying impacts of inflation on your supply chain, all of this uh, real-time data just changes how you can make decisions. Yeah, and we've done, and you've partnered with a lot of media owners on this, and we've done some things with you as well. And the, the beauty of it is you can turn the data around really quickly and get a real snapshot, which feeds into the news. So, tell us what you're seeing at the moment. This is the most extraordinary time yeah. with, with what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia, with the State of the Union address. You know, what have you seen over the past week, for example, that really stands out from from your uh, data collection? So we tend to look at it across three different areas. So the case around brands and the situation for companies involved in the crisis or some of the different differentiated pieces in the U.S. economy. Uh, the second area would be around the state of the economy itself. Are people spending more? Are they comfortable with rising prices? Um, and the third is just geopolitical risk. And I think what you see in our real-time data across Western Europe in particular 
uh, is that you have this hardening resolve among NATO members. In a lot of ways, they're coalescing around support for sanctions, even if it costs more. So obviously, energy prices is an area where a lot of folks have looked to. Um, but you're seeing this sort of willingness to, to cooperate and, and present a united front despite increasing costs. I think one of the things we're looking really closely at is we have daily economic tracking across Russia and this ability to understand what is the impact of the sanctions on the Russian people. And so I think what you can start to see here is that there hasn't been as big of a rally around the flag effect. You're starting to see some slippage. And obviously, the, the fall of the ruble here earlier in the week predicates as much. But for U.S. companies, it obviously presents a challenge in terms of if they've made investments in Russia or they made investments in terms of technology applications and, and those use cases around the world. And what you're seeing is also further support for U.S. or multinational companies in terms of shutting down those services or pulling resources out of Russia. And so I think that's obviously a very significant paradigm shift versus the last 20 years in terms of operating in Russia. Was there anything that popped out that really surprised you? Because I know sometimes your your data doesn't necessarily just uh, replicate what everyone's thinking, which is why it's so valuable, I guess. I've, you know, I've seen your surveys in the past where it can, it can buck a trend that is, is sort of everybody is believing in. Yeah, I think the big thing that stood out to me was prior to the invasion, you saw a split in opinion, for instance, across Germany in particular, but other Western European countries around uh, support. And I think what a lot of it was is this difference between the impact on energy prices. And I think ultimately the big paradigm shift here was once the invasion started, I think there was much greater support for those sanctions. And so it's, it's not so much that it's um, shocking that that would happen. Obviously, the imagery out of the country has been incredibly uh, tragic and, and quite shocking in its own right. But I think it's just you start to see that shift where folks may be, maybe before in a hypothetical question were thinking more of their pocketbook. But you're seeing that sort of real-time emotion of the impact and the willingness uh, to think beyond their own personal pocketbook. And even that means higher energy prices. Now, you came out of um, consulting and you were at a, uh, a firm called Purple, which was kind of cross bipartisan. Obviously, in America, we, you know, we've, we've got an incredibly febrile political environment. Um, and I guess President Biden was trying to put in in his speech, State of the Union, some things that might cross the divide. What, do you, what is your data showing you about that and your surveying um, about how, how can we build an America where but maybe we can find areas to agree on a bit more? You know, I think one of the things that our data oftentimes shows is no one speech, even a state of the union moves large swaths of the population. And so I think it's sort of the sustained focus. If you're going to see bipartisanship arise, it's not going to be in one speech. It's not going to be over one year or in one Congress. I think what we see time and again is sort of this uh, understanding in the data that it takes time and it takes consistent effort. So kind of independent of politics, that's also true for brands. I think we're just shocked the degree to which people expect overnight changes in the data. And maybe that was the case because there's just natural volatility because most of our competitors would just do maybe a thousand person survey. But when you're doing 75,000 interviews a year and over 200 a day on those brands, you really get to see the fact that they're just, you know, it takes time for shifts to happen. It doesn't mean it won't happen overnight. Like there obviously was some moments across the last year where you'd see situations like in China, some of the brands are involved uh, in the, the cotton boycott type pieces. You saw the impacts in China, you saw them within two or three days. But it's just, it's very rare that you'd see one speech level that impact. Um, I think what you've seen with Biden's approval rating in the U.S. has been pretty steady. You haven't seen quite as much of a rally around the flag effect, whereas in, in the UK or in Germany, you have seen uh, those country leaders see a little bit of a bounce in terms of their response to the overall Ukraine crisis. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, obviously, in the days and weeks to come if there is sort of a more material swell of support. 
Yeah, and if you look at sort of going back to old school polling, if you like, it was telephone based or and you even look at the Nielsen TV measurement panels, kind of home based. They haven't quite kept up with modern user trends. How do you ensure that your panels are representative of everybody and that you're not over skewing to Democrats or Republicans or, you know, and that you get a real snapshot of what's going on? Absolutely. I mean, it starts by not waiting on party ID. If you want a true representation of the population, you have to look to parameters like the census. So for us, we're looking for representative samples based on age, income, ethnicity, education, gender, region of the country, and not just in the U.S. If we're going daily in 44 countries, it's really critical to be able to look at that representative sample across all of those countries. I think what stands out is, you know, historically, you would just randomly call the phone book. And if everyone answers their phone, you might be able to find just a totally randomized sample. Moving online is even more difficult. And I think what is clearly separated Morning Console from competitors, both legacy and new entrants, is just the scale and the quality assurance pieces we have in place. If we're going to do over 35,000 interviews a day, we're able to look and see both what's high quality respondents, as well as the attendance tests within those surveys. But then finally, the real-time data. You can see aberrations of the data. You can look at trends, especially in emerging markets, that would point to potential quality concerns. And it's that real-time monitoring. I think what we're shocked by is still, to this day, for $90 billion industry, most folks are maybe doing a quarterly survey or they're doing a monthly, a weekly survey at best. And you're just not going to get the time frequency in terms of being able to spot aberrations or potential quality concerns. You're also not going to get the depth. Like You can't look at it by cities. You can't look at it by subpopulations. So I think a lot of our success just speaks to this desire among CMOs, among CCOs, heads of insights, heads of strategy that, hey, I need real-time data, and I got to know about it specifically among certain populations because some of these crises may not resonate among a general population. There's too much fragmentation in the media channels and consumption, but it may resonate among specific populations. So spotting those issues is critical and certainly where we've seen a lot of success with our clients. One of the things you've done and it's part of your growth is you've recently opened new offices in D.C. and New York, I think, and you've now got four offices. But you had the luxury of kind of building them in the context of maybe a post-COVID world, hopefully. So tell us about that, because that was sounded fascinating that you are building a workplace for the future, right? The new workplace. Firstly, you obviously see a value in having a physical office space. So Talk us through that process and how you design something that will hopefully attract people actually back into an office environment. Yeah, I think we've always been future focused in what we thought an enterprise company should operate like. It's not the nine to five, five days a week in an office. I've got co-founders that are spread across uh, New York and I'm in Chicago. I've got another co-founder in Washington, D.C. We also have offices in San Francisco and that was prior to the pandemic. And I think what we knew from day one was that we were going to operate in a hybrid world. And so from the moment the pandemic hit and we went fully remote, the focus was on what we were going to reopen to. And if you think about our growth, prior to the pandemic, went from 160 employees to now here in kind of this new stage of the pandemic, over 500 employees. So more than two-thirds of the organization had never physically met each other in any type of morning consult facility. And so it was really starting by thinking about what is it that we could support? And the first principle we had was this commitment to hybrid work. We just felt like in terms of where people wanted to work and the ability to attract the best talent was core to our strategy. And so we were open to having that support, whether it was remote, whether it was in office, whether it was two or three days a week. We now have employees across 35 states. So obviously this sort of challenge of uh, putting in place the, the people and financial infrastructure to support that. And then I think what we started to shift to in the second year of the pandemic was what's the facility design we're going to bring folks back to? So obviously, you know, we were fortunate we didn't have a number of 10-year-plus leases. So we got to start really with an open mind about what a post 
uh, or new normal might look like. And I think our view is that these had to be highly multifunctional spaces. Really, this commitment to learning and training and engagement in collaborative spaces. And so we really took advantage of that and working with our architectural firms and engineering firms as we built out these spaces in Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. So that way, if, if a team is meeting in San Francisco or meeting in New York, they're going to be able to meet with collaborators from across the country. And part of that isn't just a facility shift. We need to make sure that the technology in those facilities also marries up the home office of our remote workforce so they don't feel like they're left out after a meeting ends and a following conversation takes place. We need to have the managers and the overall workforce culture that's going to support this hybrid environment. I think it's easier said than done. And I'm sure there's ways that we're going to need to really improve in the next year. But I think we've seen it. We have substantially below uh, turnover. Um, we're really fortunate for that. I think we've just had a really great workforce that has obviously experienced a tremendous amount of growth. But it, it's something that we think is a huge competitive advantage. Yeah, and give us a couple of tips because everyone's kind of thinking about it now, aren't they? The mask mandates are lifted in D.C. and they're lifting elsewhere. People are thinking about getting back. But, you know, let's be honest, it's not easy getting people to come back, even young people especially. They're sort of saying, oh, actually, I'm going to go work somewhere else if, if I'm going to be told to go back to work. So are there a couple of things that you've noticed from this process that you could advise employees you know, generally in service industries? I think we look at it as a national marketplace. And so there's no cost of living adjustment changes or anything. We look at it as if you're able to be a high performer in your role, it doesn't matter where you live and we should support you first and foremost from a financial standpoint. And so I think that's been critical in bringing over really extremely talented, experienced talent. Um, I'm certainly not on everyone's favorites list. I think in the industry, we've been able to add just tremendous experienced executives. Um, and I think that's a key part of it. I think the second component that really matters uh, is you can't just say you're a hybrid work environment and then just leave remote employees out on their own to figure out the technology piece. Um, from the moment we went fully remote at the beginning of the pandemic, we supported high-speed internet and we wanted to make sure it's at that high speed. So you had these really great Zoom uh, and or Google Meet experiences with clients. And I think from our standpoint, it wasn't just, okay, they got high-speed internet. We're supporting also um, technology investments with monitors or other technology items in their homes. I think that was a key part of it and something we're committed to doing is making sure that if you want to be remote, the same type of investment we'd make in physical spaces in our offices, we're also going to support in your workplace, which would be your home uh, or something similar. And then I think the third is, is frankly that, that last part, which is just recognizing that it's a different level of manager training to think about the fact that how do we make sure that people who are working remote or aren't in the office every day don't miss out on some of these informal conversations. And so I think we've been really lucky because as the workforce came together so dramatically, we essentially tripled. So a lot of the kind of culture and workplace norms we're able to implement on day one as these folks were joining the organization or as our existing employees were sort of uh, beginning to operate in a new normal. So I, I think it's just a matter of being top of mind on the third piece. I don't think there's an easy way to do it. I just think the the idea that you have to think critically about the fact that you don't want your remote uh, and or you know, hybrid employees to feel like they're totally missing out on critical conversations in the workplace. And I, I think it's a mentality shift. And I, I think it's going to be particularly hard for legacy organizations to make that shift. Yeah, for sure. And just very quickly to finish, you know, you, you've got your Series B last year funding. You've valued at a billion. What's next? You know, what is is there an end game? What, what, what's what's yeah. the plan? How are you going to uh, take it to the next level? You know, I think we feel incredibly fortunate about the fact that we've been able to build a $100 million plus run rate. You know, we're consistently doubling uh, year over year. And I think from our standpoint, what we're focused on is driving client value. 
And that's not just in the United States. You'll see some major investments across EMEA and Asia Pacific uh, from us. I think we're being pushed there by our clients. They want to see this technology, uh, not just from the data collection. We're already global in our scale, but they want to see us physically present in more of those markets. So you'll see some investments internationally. Um, I think the last thing is just you know, from our standpoint, we're building a standalone business. This isn't a business built to sell. This is a business built to really transform this $90 billion industry. And I think we feel incredibly fortunate to get to the point we are now. But gosh, we're just getting started. It's an early stage for the company, and I'm really excited to be able to give you updates here in the coming years. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and you can get very distracted if all you're trying to do is get an end game of selling, isn't it? Isn't it? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a different mentality. The technology piece, to be a technology-first organization, is a different mentality than kind of traditionally the, the agency holding model. Yeah. All right, Michael, great to catch up on Coffee Break. And yeah, look forward to checking in, you know, when you're worth $2 billion. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Coffee Break. For more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.